The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Advances in Chronic Spontaneous Urticaria. Expert insight on translating progress to practice for improved symptom control and quality of life. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HWY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everyone, uh, to this uh, uh, presentation on chronic spontaneous urticaria. I'm Joe Diaz. I'm an allergist uh, in San Antonio, uh, where I've practiced for the last 35 years. And I'm joined today by Dr. with Dr. Erica Gonzalez, a colleague and close friend of mine, also here in San Antonio, a, a board-certified allergist. We'd like to welcome you to this presentation on advances in chronic spontaneous urticaria. It's an exciting time to talk about this. Most of you all may know that there were recent guidelines just published, updated guidelines by the really the multiple international societies that deal with chronic spontaneous urticaria. So on that note, I'm gonna dive in and uh, do my part of the presentation, um, uh, which is uh, covering pretty much everything except maybe therapy. Um, as we all know, or urticaria is poorly understood and often underestimated. It's characterized by the sudden onset of itchy wheels and with or without swelling. And it often resolves within 24 to 72 hours, kind of respectively. If it's angioedema, it takes a little bit longer. Uh, I know this is repetitive in, in many ways, but it is important to make sure that we start at the basics. The wheel has usually is characterized by three typical features. Sharply circumscribed, superficial, central pallor, almost always uh, associated and surrounded by, by erythema, often reflex-type erythema. It often itches, uh, sometimes burns, and it's fleeting. Uh, the classic uh, duration uh, of symptoms for urticaria, the, the classic duration of the, of the wheels is usually 30 minutes to 24 hours. If you have angioedema associated with the urticaria, it is also sudden and pronounced. It can be skin color or it can be red. It's usually swelling of the lower dermis or the subcutis, often involving the mucous membranes also. And it's associated more often with tingling and burning, maybe some tightness of the, of the mucous membranes if you have swelling there. Um, it's often more tingling and burning, as I mentioned, uh, but it also uh, can takes a little bit longer to resolve. So basic information. and. You know, I, I encourage everyone to, to go and track down these latest guidelines um, uh, uh, on the diagnosis, workup, classification, and treatment of chronic spontaneous urticaria. As we know, urticaria is considered acute if it's present for less than six weeks or chronic for greater than six weeks. All of our residents know that definition. <laughs> what they don't know is the newer classification it's urticaria spontaneous, if we really don't have a specific eliciting factor, um, or, or sometimes the factors are known, uh, or it's also, it's also classified as inducible uh, if we have the eliciting factor involved identified. On the left of this screen, you can see what I just mentioned, but on the right, you can see the inducible urticaria examples. And those of us that take care of these patients have seen all of these types of inducible urticaria. So simple differences in the updated guidelines and definitions that I think we should be very, very familiar with. Again, those of us that take care of these patients know that it can add a substantial burden to our patients. This is an example of all the things that I've seen in my practice from simple embarrassment to profound depression and isolation uh, it does create a lot of stress and anxiety for our patients. They can't go to work. They can't go to school, especially our teenage and adolescent patients. Uh, and if they have angioedema, even worse. So there's no question that there is a substantial burden in our patients who have chronic spontaneous urticaria. And associated with that, we often see these associated clinical symptoms. And, and I say often because I'm not really sure it's related by any means to the urticaria, but we definitely have patients that maybe because of anxiety can get short of breath. Sometimes they do have abdominal symptoms that 
that could suggest abdominal angioedema. They get anxious with palpitations and have these other kind of constitutional uh, nonspecific symptoms. But we do often see these things, which, which can further add to the burden of, of the condition. How common is it? Uh, we see a lot of urticaria patients in our clinic. And, and, and the more people know we take care of urticaria, the more often we see them. But at any given time, 1% of the population can have urticaria, chronic urticaria, and two-thirds of those have chronic, I'm sorry, and two-thirds of those have chronic spontaneous urticaria. Women are twice as likely as men to have it. And I find this, the right side of this slide very interesting. If you do have angioedema present with your urticaria, the symptoms seem to be longer lasting and they often seem to be of more severity. Uh, chronic spontaneous urticaria will last for one to five years in general, but I have seen many examples where it lasts for a, a much shorter duration. And I have seen examples where they've last for a number of years, surely more than five years. The pie diagram below to the right is also very important. Uh, the vast majority of our patients have only urticaria, but a good third of those patients do have associated angioedema. When I see a patient with urticaria and angioedema, I like to classify uh, the angioedema as life-threatening or non-life-threatening. If you're talking about laryngeal involvement and strider, I get more concerned. The vast majority of patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria really have non-life-threatening angioedema of an extremity, for example, or of the lips or the, the periorbital area. But remember I said earlier that if you have angioedema, the disease course is usually a little bit tougher, longer, and more severe and actually maybe more difficult to treat. So this is an article by Dr. Metz that was published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology Practice uh, in 21. And it's interesting that this article really reviews the, the seven C's in the CSU diagnostic workup. And these seven C's have actually been incorporated into the international guidelines. It's a complex slide. It, it does kind of explain what we, should, what we should all be doing in our patients that we see with chronic spontaneous urticaria. Obviously we take a good physical, we take a good history. We do a physical examination and depending on where you trained and what your experience is, there may be some basic tests that you do. You also have to assess the severity and we often use validated test, tests like the urticaria control tests. But regardless of that, I think everyone in this audience is probably doing that. It's important to look at the seven C's. And again, kind of a, a long slide, but I'm going to try to go through this quickly to kind of cover some of the highlights, because we're going to dig a little bit deeper into all of these, quote, C's uh, in the next few slides. Always tell my residents, even if, even if a patient is referred for chronic urticaria, is to make sure that it's chronic urticaria. There is a differential diagnosis that can be quite significant that you need to rule out other, other diseases that can present and mimic urticaria. We look for causes. I think it's very important to try to identify the cause, the type of autoimmunity of which many of our patients have, whether it be type one, maybe IgE mediated or type two B, maybe IgG mediated. We look for cofactors, what things trigger. Is it NSAIDs, is it stress? We look at comorbidities. What, is the, the, what are the other associated comorbidities that our patients suffer from? Often mental health, often other autoimmune diseases. And then the consequences. What, are the, what is the impact of this chronic urticaria in our patients? I mentioned, that, I, I mentioned that in the slide earlier. And then finally, what do we do as experts? What do we do as experts? Do we really look for biomarkers and dig down deeper trying to find predictors of maybe treatment response. And then finally, we, we monitor the course, which is the seventh C in this slide. We monitor the course for the impact and control. So I'm gonna cover briefly in the next few slides, these seven Cs in a little more detail. Again, this is not even a complete differential diagnosis, but it is important, especially with those of us that train residents and medical students, that they clearly understand that urticaria 
uh, uh, can have a large differential diagnosis. It can be urticaria pigmentosa, which is now referred to as macular papular cutaneous mastocytosis. It can be mastocytosis, systemic mastocytosis, mastocytosis presenting as uh, urticaria. We're now starting to see more and more patients with mast cell activation syndrome. Urticarial vasculitis needs to be in the differential because it does present a little bit differently. The urticarial lesions can leave scars. There can be more burning or discomfort. They can last for greater than 24 hours, part of the differential diagnosis. Then I'm not going to go into all of these word by word, but we have a large number of patients with hereditary angioedema that present with angioedema often and almost always without urticaria, but they have often peculiar rashes, whether it be erythema multiforme or other types of skin rashes that can confuse the workup and the diagnosis of urticaria. And then I do want to point out to a couple of the, the syndromes in, in the lower part of the slide, these autosomal dominant syndromes, CAPS as we refer to them, cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes, the one that I have seen the most is familial cold autoinflammatory syndrome and muckle wells. So it's part of the differential. And, and if you don't know about these autosomal dominant conditions, the clinical presentation and the workup, I urge you to, to consider, uh, evaluate, uh, consider learning the evaluation uh, and, and diagnostic uh, op opportunities that are out there, whether it be genetic testing or even biopsies but you can see the differential. So we have to make sure that we understand that this is simple chronic spontaneous urticaria or chronic inducible urticaria. We gotta look for the underlying cause. This is the second C in those seven Cs. We should really be asking those relevant questions. We should consider doing laboratory workup. Is it an autoimmune base? Is there an association with antithyroid antibodies? What's the IgE level? This is something I learned in preparing for this presentation, how low IgE, for example, may be associated with less response to omelizumab as compared to high IgEs. We often, and almost always in our chronic urticaria patients, will do uh, IgG antithyroid peroxidase uh, uh, antibodies, mainly to get an, an idea, is this an autoimmune disease or not? We used to do autologous serum skin testing in the past, but now there are laboratory tests that can help you um, um, bypass that. And it is important to at least look for these underlying causes when you're evaluating patients for type 1 or type 2B autoimmunity, which we'll talk about in a minute. What about cofactors? I think all of us who take care of urticaria tell our patients to avoid NSAIDs. Is there any food sometimes, high histamine-containing foods that can modify or worsen the disease of chronic underlying urticaria? These, these other cofactors need to be considered. I've had many examples where infections triggered the, the urticaria, especially viral infections, even though they had chronic urticaria, a viral infection, for example, more often in kids will trigger an exacerbation of their chronic urticaria. So it is good to look for these cofactors and try to identify things that you might uh, be able to address to decrease the, the impact of the chronic urticaria on the patient. Comorbidities and consequences. Uh, I mentioned already earlier but the, the, that there are com comorbidities that can be associated with urticaria. Most often it's thyroid disease. Most often it's autoimmune thyroid disease like Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And if you do suspect that, it can lead you to further investigation, maybe thyroid function tests. And again, the anti-thyroid IgG uh, thyroid peroxidase antibodies. Clearly, the consequences uh, of part of this condition is the chronic mental disorders, the depression, the anxiety. And then again, when you're asking about comorbidities or consequences, try to do a good investigation into, are there clear-cut causes? Is it inducible? Uh, is it related to cold? Is it related to sun exposure, um, uh, which you can address and minim minimize or decrease the, the impact of that chronic urticaria? But us as experts need to pay attention to this slide. And again, in that article by Metz that I mentioned earlier, it's a very nice review article that actually covers what should we be ordering? What should we not be ordering? What is the, the, the evidence to support ordering these tests? And I'm not going to go over this slide in complete detail, 
But you can see that there are lab tests that have been associated if, if positive or abnormal with disease duration. There are lab markers and biomarkers associated with worsened activity of the chronic urticaria. There are lab parameters that you can do more than just history and physical exam that might help you identify those patients who are going to have a suboptimal response to typical second-generation antihistamines. And as I mentioned earlier, there are parameters like low IgE that can identify patients that may have a poor response to omelizumab. And then finally, there is a parameter, low IgE and a positive basophil histamine release that might be associated with a good response to cyclosporine. And as Dr. Gonzalez will talk about shortly, before biologics, we were going to cyclosporine and dapsone and methotrexate and plaquenil. Fortunately, she's gonna tell us about all of the new therapies, mainly biologics, which have really changed the, the way we address this condition. But to review just briefly, uh, the presence of IgG antithyroid peroxidase antibodies, like, like, like I said, we do those routinely. I learned about D-dimer in, pre in, in preparation for this presentation and, and, the, and, and the, the value of a, obtaining a D-dimer and how it might be associated with worsened, act, worsened disease activity. We order frequently a basophil histamine release. We used to do an autologous skin test in the past, which was very helpful in identifying those patients who have that autoimmune urticaria. But you can see from this kind of somewhat exhaustive list of, op of options that us as, as experts have that we should consider uh, uh, doing some of these or all of these, or at least reviewing that METS article to try to help us direct uh, which, which laboratory tests we might wanna order in our patients, which may be predictive of outcomes when it comes to therapy. This is a complicated slide, I know, uh, but when you really stop and focus on it, it's really a pretty good algorithm uh, I've printed this and give it to all of our residents. Again, it's made the international guidelines. Let me just take you down one simple, one simple part of this algorithm. If on the left you have wheels and you don't have constitutional symptoms and the wheels do not last for greater than 24 hours and they're not inducible, you have chronic spontaneous urticaria. If they are inducible, you have chronic inducible urticaria. And you can see, if I, as I take you one down one path of this algorithm, that it's really pretty simple. It's really pretty simple. And there's a few questions and maybe a biopsy or maybe uh, um, uh, C1 esterase inhibitor laboratory test you may want to do. But if a patient presents with urticaria or angioedema, this is a very nice little algorithm that helps us in, in directing our questions and maybe even our diagnostic testing. What we do when we do clinical trials for urticaria, we have to have some kind of objective measurement of the urticaria activity, whether it be the urticaria activity test or whether it be this, this uh, UAS, uh, urticaria activity uh, score, which is often used in clinical trials. It's a simple way to assess your patients when they're coming in or when they're, or when they're in a clinical trial or when, or when you're intervening with medications and want to, want to identify the response. It's a cumulative score of the wheels and the itch, and patients actually count the number of wheels, and it's a sum of those scores, and it, you can get a daily UAS, or you can get a UAS-7, which is the last seven days. Um, we do do this in some patients. Uh, 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 it, it often is more of, of a retrospective analysis. Uh, it's used more in clinical trials, but it's a simple parameter. What I prefer to use is this, and this is the urticaria control test. You can see very, very simple, very simple. Four questions, all numerical. And at the bottom of this slide, you get an idea if patients are well-controlled or have not had much response and you can even get recommendations on what to do as far as, the, as far as stepping up or stepping down therapy. So this is my go-to, and we're actually putting this in our EMR um, like we do with the asthma control test to um, uh, help us monitor our patients um, uh, sequentially as they continue to come in and see us and be able to query those uh, UCTs and identify a trend if they're improving or not. The last part of my presentation is really, I think, the most exciting part, 
is this pathogenesis? What is the pathogenesis? And, and honestly, there's a lot of theories and there's a lot of evidence to support those theories. I think most of us would agree that the more common cause of chronic spontaneous urticaria is really an autoimmune cause. And really, we started to recognize this when we started to, to look at thyroid antibody presence in patients with CSU. And there was an association in those of us when we first learned, uh, um, I don't know, probably 20 years ago now, maybe 30 years ago, that many patients with chronic urticaria had a serum factor uh, that you could actually um, draw out. We used to do this in here, draw blood, spin it down, and then do an autologous skin test. And lo and behold, about 50% of our patients had a positive test suggesting that there was an antibody in that, uh, in, in that plasma uh, that was causing that, uh, that urticarial eruption. And indeed, we now agree that often patients have an IgG antibody directed against that IgE receptor. Uh, and other autoantibodies have been described. Then there's these plasma factors, which are a little bit different than, than the, the, what's found in the serum. And, and, and we don't skin test with plasma and serum, but there are some differences in factors that you might be able to identify. And then another common theory is this cellular defect theory, where there's really defects in trafficking and signaling and function and where there is cellular defects. The, the cellular defect theory is, is also very commonly accepted. And there are many patients where, where it is believed that there may be a defect in basophil or even mast cell trafficking, signaling, and function, which results in, in mast cells uh, degranulating and releasing those factors. Histamine obviously is the most common, uh, common and the most, well, the most, the most understood uh, in patients uh, developing urticaria. And then as you can see at the bottom, some of the other theories um, that we see with patients who have chronic urticaria uh, following an exhaustive workup, you might find that it's a food additive and avoidance of that food additive sometimes may result in improvement in the urticaria. And then finally, this is an example of kind of the, the autoimmune component. You can see that mast cell, as I mentioned earlier, one theory is intracellular signaling defects that result in mast cell degranulation. But the majority of our patients, I believe, have an autoimmune mechanism. Whether it be an IgG autoantibody directed against the high affinity IgE receptor, or whether it be an IgG antibody directed against IgE with subsequent cross-linking and degranulation, or whether it be you have autoreactive IgE antibodies directed against self-antigens, for example, thyroid peroxidase, causing cross-linking of that IgE molecule on the mast cell resulting in degranulation. So it's, it's phenomenal of all the information and all the tests now that we can do to identify patients at more risk of having more severe disease or not responding to therapies. But I believe this is the main mechanism. And, and Dr. Gonzalez will, will talk to us a little bit uh, shortly about maybe what we can do when it comes to the use of biologics. Chronic spontaneous urticaria, or CSU, is a mast cell-driven skin disease characterized by the recurrence of transient wheels, also referred to as hives, angioedema, or both for more than six weeks. Several mechanisms have been investigated as possibly contributing to the pathogenesis of CSU, including infections, food intolerance, coagulation cascade, genetic factors, and autoimmunity. In type 1 autoimmune CSU, IgE autoantibodies to autoantigens, such as thyroid peroxidase and interleukin-24, activate mast cells to secrete vasoactive mediators, cytokines, and chemokines. These, in turn, activate endothelial cells, increase vascular permeability, and promote the migration of blood cells to the dermis. In type 2b and 3 autoimmune CSU, IgG autoantibodies to the IgE receptor, or IgE itself, activate mast cells with the same consequences. Two IgG molecules in proximity activate complement, type 3, to liberate C5A, which augments mast cell secretion and is a separate chemotactic factor for granulocytes and monocytes. 
The rationale for the development of new agents to be tested for putative efficacy in CSU is dependent on assumptions about which of the aforementioned contributions to hive formation can be inhibited to significantly suppress symptoms. New biologics that are currently under development for the treatment of patients with chronic urticaria aim to reduce mast cell activation. By blocking activating pathways or engaging inhibitory receptors or mast cell numbers. Biologics that are currently approved for other conditions are also being evaluated for the treatment of chronic spontaneous urticaria. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that inhibits the signaling of the IL 4 and IL 13 pathways. IL 4 and IL 13 are key and central drivers of the type 2 inflammation that plays a role in asthma, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, atopic dermatitis, eosinophilic esophagitis, parigonodularis, and CSU. Notably, it was recently reported that a pivotal phase 3 trial met its primary endpoints and all key secondary endpoints at 24 weeks. Showing that the addition of dupilumab to standard of care antihistamines significantly reduced itch and hives for biologic naive patients, compared with those treated with antihistamines alone. IL 5 may contribute to the pathogenesis of chronic spontaneous urticaria by direct effects on skin mast cells and by promoting the recruitment of eosinophils and basophils to skin sites of wheel development. Eosinophils and basophils are elevated in the lesional skin of patients with CSU. Where they bidirectionally interact with mast cells. Furthermore, high disease activity in CSU is linked to eosinopenia and basopenia. Venralizumab, an anti IL 5 receptor antibody, and the anti IL 5 antibodies mepolizumab and reslizumab are licensed and used for the treatment of patients with asthma. IL 17 is associated with many autoimmune disorders, and blood levels of IL 17 in patients with CSU have recently been reported to be elevated and linked to high disease activity. Moreover, the expression of IL 17 was found to be upregulated in the skin of patients with chronic spontaneous urticaria. In a recent study, the anti IL 17 monoclonal antibody secukinumab reduced disease activity in patients with CSU who were refractory to other treatments. The development and launch of novel agents for chronic spontaneous urticaria are encouraging for patients unresponsive to current treatments. As newer biological agents become available, clinicians need to understand both the target and therapeutic mechanism in order to better select appropriate patients for these therapies. My part of the presentation is going to include discussion on the treatment of CSU. What do we have available to us now?、Um, what's next? What's coming down the pipeline for us? When we look at the basic considerations in the management of CSU, just like in any other chronic disease, we want to establish our primary goal. And for most of us, that would be complete resolution or control of the symptoms.、Uh, I like to personally establish some realistic expectations with my patients from the beginning、um, and discuss with them that the goal should be us being able to control their symptoms to the point where it's no longer affecting their quality of life. Therefore, if they have A few hives here and there, but it's not really causing uh, any uh, interruption in their quality of life or their daily living. Then I would prefer for them to have that than for us to have to、uh, consider stepping up in treatment, which may result in more side effects. With the after establishing the goal, our initial approach includes trying to identify、uh, if there's any underlying causes, such as infections, maybe it's a medication they're, they're taking, or avoiding any factors that have been shown to elicit symptoms. A lot of times, this includes our physical stimuli like stress, heat, cold.、Uh, in some patients, we could consider it. Tolerance induction. However, this is very difficult to maintain in a patient. So, we have a patient who comes and sees us with cold urticaria, and we're able to desensitize them.、Um, that would involve them having to do、uh, ice baths about two to three times a week. And this is very difficult for a patient to be able to continue. So, a lot of times that's not an option that we can use long term. Um, the use of treatment of drugs to prevent the symptoms mainly focuses on us trying to prevent the release of the mast cell mediators, which result in the symptoms that we see in CSU. And then once we、um, Start a patient on treatment, we want to make sure that we are looking at them frequently to determine whether or not any step up or step down in their management course is needed. Now, 
how do we determine whether we should adjust the treatment? Uh, we look at the patient and as we're seeing them in follow-up, we want to assess whether their symptoms are controlled, whether any of their symptoms are affecting their quality of life. Much like Dr. Diaz had mentioned, the urticaria control test or the UCT is a useful tool for us to use, uh, much like the ACT score that we use in asthma. And this helps us determine if a patient is completely controlled, well-controlled or uncontrolled. And so there's different benchmarks for us to look at. The highest you can get on this uh, UCT test is a 16. So if a patient were to have a UCT of 16, we know that they're completely controlled. If they fall within the range of 12 to 15, uh, we assume um, or make the assumption that they are well-controlled and at that point decide, do we keep them on this uh, same therapy that they have been on or do we actually want to try maybe to step down? For those patients that have UCTs that are less than 12, we would consider this uncontrolled. And at that point, if we um, have not stepped up the therapy to full, four times the antihistamine dose, we would try that. Um, or we would uh, also consider changing them um, if for whatever reason they were having side effects with any of the medications that they were taking. This slide is showing the most recent recommendation treatment algorithm for urticaria. Now, um, a lot had not changed until about seven years ago when we got our first approved biologic on the market for the treatment of urticaria. Up until that point, and even now, the initial treatment of our patients includes treatment with a second generation H1 antihistamine. Sometimes we have to increase the dose up to four times the normal uh, uh, label dose of the antihistamine to see if that's enough to control. If this is not enough, then since 2014, we have been able to add the use of omalizumab um, on, in addition to their H1 antihistamines to see if this will help them achieve control. And if not, at that point, we really start to lose uh, the availability of options. Um, Cyclosporin would be one of the medications that we consider at that point. As Joe previously mentioned, we previously used methotrexate, colchicine, dapsone, so many side effects associated with that. And even with cyclosporin, we want to make sure that once we start a patient on that, we're monitoring them for things like high blood pressure. Uh, this drug is also known to increase hair growth, uh, cause hyperplasia of the gum, and even kidney dysfunctions. Now, we are all familiar with the second-generation antihistamines that are out on the market. This, of course, includes cetirizine, levocetirizine, fexofenadine, loratadine, and desloratadine. And we've got the standard label uh, doses for those antihistamines on this slide. The only two that are actually considered non-sedating are cetirizine and fexofenadine. Um, however, when you start to give them in doses that are above the approved um, FDA label, they do start to cause sedation in most patients. Fexofenadine is the least likely to cause that as it's the only one that truly does not cross that blood-brain barrier. The studies that have looked at H1 antihistamines have shown that in most of our patients, they control symptoms to some degree. However, the responsiveness is very variable, so it's really difficult to identify which patients are going to see the benefit from the antihistamines and which are going to require a little bit of more therapy. The studies uh, that have been done on antihistamines have shown that both the first and the second generation antihistamines are useful. However, because of the side effects of sedation with the first generation antihistamine, uh, it is much preferred to use a second generation antihistamine as your main therapy to treat your patients. When we reach the point where we're using up to four times the amount of the antihistamine and we're still not seeing control, at this point, the guidelines do recommend, uh, recommend adding omalizumab uh, to their uh, second-generation antihistamine regimen. Now, when we think about how many of our patients are actually going to require a step-up of therapy, we do know that up to 50% of our patients who are on antihistamines are still going to have breakthrough symptoms of their urticaria, and these are the patients that we will require stepping up. As of now, we only have omalizumab um, as the biologic on the market that could treat the symptoms. Um, you can go to things like the cyclosporin as we previously described. However, it is important to note that we are very limited in options as to what we can use and we, we do need to um, find additional safe and effective treatment options for our patient. 
So omeluzumab is one of the current biologics that has approval for refractory chronic urticaria. And it first came out in the market in 2014. Um, it is approved for patients uh, ages 12 and older who are not responsive uh, to uh, the antihistamines. And the initial phase three clinical trials were done uh, placebo controlled trials with patients who had moderate to severe antihistamines that were refractory to uh, antihistamines at that point. These studies include Asteria 1, Asteria 2, and Glacial. Asteria 1 and 2 looked at patients who were currently taking approved doses of the H1 antihistamine, while Glacial study was looking at those patients who had already been increased to four times the recommended doses, or who also may have been taking another medication uh, for symptom control, such as leukotriene receptor agonists, uh, maybe the H2 antihistamines, or all three medications in combination. When we look at the proportion of responders by treatment group, the results of these trials showed that those in the omelizumab group had significant improvement in their urticarial activity score overall, and up to 40% actually had complete resolution of symptoms. So statistically significant improvement over the placebo group at both the 150 milligram and the 300 milligram doses that were tested. When you have patients who have been started in omelizumab are also taking their antihistamine, and yet we're not seeing the control that we want, this is where we uh, want to step up therapy and the point where there are fewer options available for us to treat our patients. Currently, um, we do know that there are various biologics to choose from from the market. This slide is showing those that are currently approved uh, or whether they're used off-label um, as, as systemic therapies for chronic urticaria. Omeluzumab, as stated before, is the only one that has been uh, officially approved. We have dupilumab, benraluzumab, and even uh, tezi that are approved currently for other indications. They don't have the indication for treatment of urticaria at this point. Um, however, the, we anticipate that dupilumab will get the recommendation and approval for treatment of urticaria sometime this year. Uh, we have various other biologics that are coming down the pipeline that are either in phase two or three uh, of studies um, and looking at the safety and efficacy of these biologics in the use of our patients um, and we're going to be looking at some of these in our slides a little bit further on. Dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits both the IL-4 and the IL-13 signaling uh, through the blockage of the IL-4-alpha receptor subunit. Currently, we do know that it is approved for moderate to severe atopic derm, also has approval for treatment of moderate to severe asthma and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. The initial benefit of dupilumab in patients with chronic urticaria was reported in a case study that looked at six different patients that had been given dupilumab and had shown improvement in their symptoms. If we look at the overview of the CUPID trial, which is the phase three trial of dupilumab in our urticaria patients, the design of this study included adolescents 12 years of age and older who had refractory urticaria uh, on antihistamines. It was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study. There was two parts to it, study A and study B. Study A was looking at patients who were uh, omelizumab naive, therefore they had not been treated with any other biologic up to this point. And study B was looking at those patients who had either not improved with omelizumab or who for whatever reason did not tolerate the medication. Both studies were identical. They had two arms um, and were randomized to either receive dupilumab versus placebo. They were looking at, as their primary endpoint the itch severity score, but also looked at urticary activity score as well as the UCT and quality of life in these patients. The results from the CUPID study showed that when we looked at uh, itch severity, there was a reduction in itch severity by up to 63% in the dupilumab group versus 35% um, in the placebo group. Reduction in the urticary activity severity was also similar 65% reduction in the group that was receiving dupilumab and 30% in the standard of care. 
the safety results, there was no difference between the two groups in any of the uh, side effects reported. And as to be expected, the most common adverse e event, sorry, were injection site reactions and no real big difference between the two groups. When you look at the results from study B of the CUPID study, these patients received a 24 weeks of treatment either with dupilumab or placebo every two weeks. They did reach their statistical significance in the interim analysis. However, um, when compared to the omalizumab group, they did not reach statistical significance. So this study was actually stopped uh, in the middle of last year um, and did not continue um, as it wasn't showing a difference uh, in those patients who had previously failed omalizumab therapy. One of the other biologics that is coming down the pipeline is legaluzumab. Legaluzumab is a next generation high affinity humanized monoclonal anti-IgE antibody. So what it does is that it actually goes and binds directly to the IgE antibody, preventing it from then being able to bind to the FC epsilon receptor, which when it is binded to is what results in the mast cell degranulation and release of the mediators, which we know are the uh, results uh, in the symptoms that we see in chronic urticaria. The phase 2B trial of ligaluzumab um, had very similar study design as what we're seeing in our other uh, biologics. Patients were uh, randomized to either receive uh, ligaluzumab in 24 milligram doses, 72 milligram doses, or 240 milligram doses. Uh, patients would also then either if they weren't in one of these groups were either randomized to receive omalizumab and placebo arm. Um, one of the placebo arms also did receive an initial dose of 120 milligrams uh, at the beginning of the study, just so that we can see how long it actually did last in, in the system. The 3B studies for legaluzumab are now under um, uh, being conducted, and they include the PEARL-1 and the PEARL-2 study. These studies looked at adolescents that were greater than 12 years of age who were having symptoms despite being on antihistamines. Um, they were designed identically to be phase three multi-center double-blind active control studies. We were able to recruit more than 2,000 patients across 48 countries. Um, and as of December of 2021, uh, the top line results did show that the studies met their primary endpoint, uh, supporting the use of legaluzumab over placebo, but did not show to be superior to omalizumab. Next, we look at benraluzumab, which is an IL-5 receptor alpha-directed cytolytic monoclonal antibody. This is currently in phase two trials. Patients received an initial injection of placebo followed by three doses of the medication four weeks apart. It is a 24-week single center study. The study known as Arroyo uh, is currently still underway and looking at efficacy and safety of benraluzumab in these patients. Another bi biologic that is coming down the market would be remibrutinib. The oral BTK inhibitor, which is what remibrutinib is, um, is very important in B-cell signaling, uh, which would then also include the isotype switching, which we would expect to be um, contribute to the symptoms that we see in our patients. This phase 2B study um, was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. There's three current trials that are underway, the BISCUIT study, which is being done in Japan, and then we have Remix 1 and Remix 2, which are being done in Europe and the United States, uh, respectively. And this study just uh, opened up in January of this year, so we would anticipate that by next year um, it could be out on the market and approved for our patients as another option for treatment. The next biologic Rhizobrutinib is also another oral BTK inhibitor. Its studies are currently underway. They're performing randomized double-blind placebo-controlled multicenter studies um, in patients with moderate to severe urticaria who, um, despite being treated with antihistamines, um, are not being controlled and who are also naive to omalizumab. The next biologic, tezapulumab, 
is a human monoclonal antibody that affects the action of thymic stromal lymphopoietin. This medication came out on the market in December of this past year, 2021. It got the approval for treatment of moderate to severe asthma um, and currently undergoing phase two trials to see if it is effective in the treatment of patients who have CSU and are not being controlled on their antihistamines. Omelizumab is now available in a pre-filled syringe. How do you get patients started on this given the risk of anaphylaxis that is associated with this medication? Thanks for the question. Um, so you're right, omelizumab was initially approved in a uh, pre-filled syringe and initially approved as a, uh, in a vial. It had a black box anaphylaxis warning when it first came out. The incidence of anaphylaxis was quite low in the pivotal trials and then in the post-marketing trial, the post-marketing reports, uh, the anaphylaxis rate did go up. Um, and then now it's approved for home administration. There are some guidelines for home administration. We do it three times in the office first, uh, and then we can send them home. I give everybody an epinephrine auto-injector, educate them on the um, uh, symptoms uh, of anaphylaxis and how to use their epinephrine auto-injector. Uh, I honestly have given thousands of Zolair injections and have never seen a case of anaphylaxis, but it has been reported. I'm a fan of giving biologics in the office. I think that uh, compliance is much better in the office. Maneuvering through the healthcare system and specialty pharmacies is better in the office when we do it. Also, the copay assistance programs uh, allow patients to use, utilize their copay assistance and it go towards their medical deductible, uh, whereas home administration is on the pharmacy deductible. So I do have a handful of patients that use it at home because of certain you know, rare circumstances like you know, living in the rural community and not able to come in, but uh, uh, you can use it at home. Um, uh, I, I caution the, the, the box warning of anaphylaxis and I caution the compliance issue, not, not just the maneuvering through the healthcare system. Okay, the next question, um, um, and I'll take this one, is, is there anything unique about CSU triggered by COVID vaccinations? Well, this is a very good question. And I think that uh, up to this point, um, we don't really know if there's something unique about the COVID vaccine itself. What we do know from looking at uh, previous vaccinations or even infection, um, they do tend to be triggers of CSU in patients. Um, anything really that activates the immune system can kind of crosswire and stimulate the uh, immune system enough to begin the pathway of chronic urticaria. So all on its own, COVID vaccinations um, are, it's not unusual for, for us to have seen that there are patients coming in who have had urticaria flare up after their vaccine, um, but whether or not there's something specifically, specifically unique about this vaccine, I, it's, it's unknown. How often should a course of oral steroids be used? Wow, great question. Um, obviously, most of our patients with an acute exacerbation of their urticaria, even chronic spontaneous urticaria, severe exacerbation, or before you intervene with therapy, we, we, we use the, the antihistamines, as you mentioned, but we often have to use a short course of steroids. Okay. How often, how often, you know, if you use the asthma data, uh, we recommend that patients not get more than two steroid bursts per year. There is a, an abundance of data now, which has really um, um, shown that the impact of steroids is more on a cumulative dose. And our patients are often going to urgent care clinics and seeing the specialist and their primary care doctors and getting bursts of steroids, whether it be IM or oral. I can tell you that two bursts of steroids in a patient, a, a standard burst for five years results in about 2,500 milligrams of steroid. And there's a famous article by Dr. David Price, uh, uh, I think in 2018, which looked at this and looked at thousands of patients and looked at different comorbidities and concluded that 1,000 milligrams, that's one milligram 
after one milligram of steroids, cumulatively, you start to see a substantial amount of comorbidities. The most significant one is a three times odds ratio of hip fracture and osteopenia and osteoporosis. So I really, really try to limit the use of systemic steroids and realizing I have to use them when the exacerbation is severe. But I, I never just treat with steroids and then move on. Whenever I have to treat with steroids, whether it be asthma or urticaria, I always know that I have to do something different because what I was doing did not work in an, in an effort to try to avoid future steroid bursts. But uh, no more than two. Okay, so the next question I'll take is, what is your favorite antihistamine to use? As we discussed in today's uh, presentation, we have evidence uh, through the studies that both the first generation and the second generation antihistamines are useful. Um, we tend to focus more on the second generation antihistamines because they too tend to be the non-sedating ones. We see a lot of sedation with the first generation antihistamines. And so that can often impair uh, patients and impact their quality of life. Uh, we'll use the first generation antihistamines as breakthrough um, medication. Um, so if they're on their standard medication regimen and they have breakthrough symptoms for any reason, they can do that for like spot treatment. Um, however, we really focus on those second generation antihistamines. And out of all of those, I have personally found that the true uh, non-sedating antihistamines, cetirizine and fexofenadine, tend to be uh, the most effective in my patients. Uh, between those two, uh, when you start to get into the higher dosing, even though both these medications are considered non-sedating, um, they can cause sedation in levels above the standard uh, one time a day dose. Um, the one that is least likely to cause that is fexofenadine because it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. So if I have to um, kind of narrow it down, my first go-to antihistamines are cetirizine and fexofenadine. So in conclusion, we know that uh, up to 40 to 50% of our patients who have chronic urticaria and are being treated with antihistamines will still not be fully controlled. Uh, biologics have opened the, our field to alternative treatment options, but on the market, there's only one currently approved uh, biologic, which is omalizumab for the treatment of urticaria. More therapies and more understanding of relevant and suitable biomarkers is definitely needed, as well as a better understanding of the pathophysiology behind chronic urticaria. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HWY860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.